before I dismiss for a children's church, I wanted to uh, let you all know the last Sunday officially was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And this is that time of the year when we try to, to uh, celebrate all the ministry that are going on to enable uh, women who are in a maybe unplanned pregnancy situation or other situation to get help. And to, I can understand that there are alternatives. Uh, and so that's what these bottles are for back there. This is Life Options, our local pregnancy center. This is our major fundraiser. So you can just put all your spare change or $50 bills or whatever in this. And then when it gets full, bring it back to the church. And you can do this all year round. Uh, the ministry is very glad to accept them all. And they come in all times during the year. Uh, so anyway, that's what this is about. But I also want to let you know that uh, the that Life Options is... Uh, you know, the, the, the battle over life has changed fronts in the last few years, actually in the immediate past. Uh, with all the now FDA approved, for some unexplained reason, uh, Plan B, Plan C abortifacient pills, uh, which now are available online to your daughters and your friends uh, without any doctor's consideration whatsoever, even though they are dangerous. Uh, that anyway, the, the battle has to change. And so we're, Life Options moving into and has been is more into trying to use uh, social media and Internet as a more effective tool and also to try to uh, uh, provide the, the counseling that people need when they're dealing with different kinds of ways now of providing ending a human life. Uh, and the, other, and the other part of that, of course, is that uh, it just went through. Um, well, maybe it'll return. <clears throat> but anyway, the, the, it's, I, it's, I should say it's, it's a, the aware presentation. It's prevention. It's trying to get the word to young people before they get into that situation. And surprisingly enough, despite how the, what the state of Washington has done, the Lord has given opportunity for life options to change the curriculum that we present in the schools a bit and still get into the schools and talk about good relationships. And some of the churches, or some of the local schools have responded, but that's a prayer request. We'd like for other, other schools to also respond. Where it's been presented, it's been very positive. Uh, so, uh, so those are the two major fronts that the, we're, we're moving into because we're you see, you'll read that the a number of abortions is going down. That's a bit misleading. I think what's happening is that individuals are taking these pills, and then there is a spontaneous abortion in most cases, but also, especially for young women, accompanied by severe bleeding and other co medical complications. So they end up at the emergency room. It doesn't get reported as an abortion. Uh, so the prevention end of it is really necessary, trying to get to people before they have to make those decisions uh, under all the pressures that get placed on young women to uh, end life. Because if you're going to follow the science, life begins at conception. That is when the unique DNA is formed of a new person. From then on, it's a matter of how mature they are. Uh, so we need to continue to work. I mean, there's some cases before the Supreme Court. They may help. Don't know. But it still comes down usually down to the state in our state, it's one, always been one of the forefronts on forcing, or not, I should say forcing, on promoting abortions. Where we're the, Washington's one of the early leaders in the whole movement. So, you know, even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, there's still, and it gets remanded to the states, guess what? Uh, we haven't changed. 
So anyway, I appreciate your prayers and time for Children's Church. I want them to hear this too. Uh, let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, that you are still at work. I thank you that you give us the ability to kind of sense the times and see how changes are taking place so that we can better adapt to meet the needs of the people around us, especially those who may be in crisis situations. So I ask, Father, that you would continue to give uh, life options and other pregnancy centers in the area uh, and around the country wisdom and how to continue to deal and find more effective ways to deal with uh, young women who find themselves in a, a crisis situation. I also thank you, Father, for the encouragement we have from your word that we're going to look at this morning. That even though sometimes the, the situations around us look bleak and the weather doesn't help here lately, uh, I thank you, Father, that you are still at work and we can be confident of that. And we're going to see that as we look into the letter to the Church of Ephesus this morning as well. So help us, Father, to uh, understand and apply what we can from this letter this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation is showing, if nothing else, that the Church of Jesus Christ is still God's plan A for the future of this world. From the very beginning of this book of Revelation, the church is in the forefront. It's really, it's in the front-line trenches. And the human author, the Apostle John, John identifies the book as prophecy. Prophecy and blessed, he says, are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And Marty showed us that New Testament prophecy includes edifying its hearers by bringing about conviction and repentance, strengthening faith, and also a warning of upcoming events where that faith might be tested. So John addresses this book early on to the seven churches that are in Asia, which is the Roman province of western Turkey. Now, based on the symbolic use of numbers, as you've already seen in Scripture, he's telling us really that Revelation, that these, Revelation applies to all churches in all times, in all places and in all situations, until Jesus returns bodily to bring about judgment and a new earth in for his disciples. So that tells us that whatever strange images and horrifying events we're going to find in this book are intended to strengthen us for whatever God has in mind for us. Because he's always at work and his plans never fail. He wants us to see that our future blessings in the new Jerusalem depend on our present faithfulness and our present obedience to him. There's a linkage. Well, let me read, first of all, the picking up from last week, the end of the vision in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in this vision, we saw that the, this vision of the Son of Man, of Jesus, it, it radiates heat and light. It says, eyes like flames and feet like bronze that just came out of the furnace and a face blazing like the sun in the desert. And his appearance is reflected in, he says, in the seven stars that he holds and the seven golden lampstands that surround him. So the lampstands, these are the image of those who were in the sanctuary of Israel, in ancient Israel, the menorah. The lampstand stood in that chamber right outside the Holy of Holies to give light to the priests who serve the Lord daily. 
And the priest kept those lamps burning by adding oil. And Jesus tells us that they symbolize the churches on earth, scattered across Western Asia and beyond. And Jesus, the Holy One of God, is moving among them, and he knows the situation more truly than they do. Now this appearance of the church as golden lampstands also signifies their calling. They're to reflect the light of Jesus' countenance and also God's heavenly court into the present darkness that's on earth. Remember, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples before. He said, you all are the light of the world. So these lampstands call the churches to reflect and to magnify the Spirit's presence here on earth in their local communities. And the letters are going to show them how. He's also reminding us that a part of the true, our true existence is heavenly. Jesus said we're seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Our real home is not with the unbelieving earth dwellers. The churches have heavenly resources and help and protection in their struggle, in their struggle not to conform to their pagan culture. And one of the reasons that we gather together on a weekly basis, at least, is to re be reminded of our heavenly existence. We're to model our worship on the heavenly church's worship of the exalted lamb who was slain. And we're going to see more what that worship means as the, as the book unfolds. But we're introduced to that worship here as we see John's response to the presence of Jesus in this very first vision. So with that kind of as a background, we now come to the seven letters, each written to a local church in the Roman province of Asia, which is now, as I said, western Turkey. Well, when you first read through the book of Revelation, these letters seem a bit disjointed. I mean, it, the book starts with a vision of Jesus, which leaves John face down in the dust. But then it moves to two chapters that are written to let, in as letters to seven churches, or more prophetic utterances. So we tend to read those letters pretty quickly because we want to get to the good stuff. They just don't seem to fit the flow of the book. And if you read commentaries from folks of the futurist persuasion, remember the chart you have, futurist? These letters are always dealt with superficially because, once again, they want to get to the good stuff. So how do these letters actually relate to the visions, recognizing that this letter was written to the seven churches? So we know already that these letters are letters directly from Christ to the churches. He walks among the golden lampstands among the churches. And as our great high priest, he provides the oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit to keep the lampstands lit. He knows what each lamp on each lampstand needs. And the vision in chapter 1 give us images, they give us pictures that help us to see characteristics of Christ that we need in the here and now, what they needed as well. And he carries those characteristics forward through those seven letters. So here I'm going to complicate things. If you look here, he's spoken of in chapter 1, verse 20, as the one who has the stars and who moves among the lampstands, which is identical to the way he's identified in Ephesians, or Eph or Ephesians or excuse me, in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. The second letter is to Smyrna, and the writer is first the first and last who was dead and has come to life, which is the designation of Christ in chapter 1, verse 17, 
carried forward through the letter. At verse 12 to the church at Pergamum, the one writing is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, which we've already seen. That's a description of Christ in chapter 1, verse 16. Proceeding to Thyatira at chapter 2, verse 18, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, that's a description of Christ in chapter 1, verse 15. Move on to Sardis in chapter 3, and he's the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which he's read about. In reference to the church at Philadelphia, he is noted as the one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And back in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus has the keys of death and hell. But you can be sure that on his belt hang all the keys. Finally, the letter to Laodicea at 3.7, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, which carries forward what's in 1.5, the very beginning of the book, with Jesus Christ called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So what does all this mean? Well, Jesus opens each letter with this little phrase, I know you. So scrutinizing, examining, looking, seeing, assessing, um, evaluating, Jesus gives John the message to every church based upon what he sees as he listens to their prayers and as he watches them, as he walks among them. Jesus knows what we are facing, and he has divine attributes that remedy each situation that we face, so he gets the glory through the church. We're to remain faithful on our parts, to persevere in obedience to our Lord, regardless of what pressures we've had to experience in this world of earth dwellers that we live in. So not only are the characteristics of Jesus that the church needs conveyed in a vision and then through the letters, but those same ideas are carried through the rest of the book. The forms of evil that the churches have to deal with are amplified in the visions from chapter 4 and following. There is continuity through the book. For example, the, the, in uh, the, church, the letter to the church at Thyatira, we meet Jezebel. Well, Jezebel there becomes Babylon, the prostitute, and the queen, who is drunk on the blood of God's people and has, seduces the multitudes when we get to chapters 14 and 17. The same image carries forward, maybe with a different name. So we're going to see parallels as we go through the book that show these relationship between the vision in chapter 1, the situation in the churches, and how those carry forward into later visions. He wants the churches to understand where they are now, but he also wants them to be prepared for what's to come, to not be surprised at what they're going to be facing. And it's not going to be easy. Because the present trials that these churches were experiencing in Asia were local expressions of the forces and figures that are symbolized as the beast or the false prophet or the prostitute in the cosmic conflict section that's going to follow. Anyway, I want to uh, take a little time to briefly address some of the general issues involved in these letters, the letters as a whole. First of all, why just those seven churches? Well, first of all, of course, we understand the symbology of the number seven as representing completeness or fullness, but there are seven actual letters here to seven actual churches. So first of all, we need to remember that the Apostle John spent, spent several years leading the churches in Ephesus. That was his home base. He, like the Apostle Paul before him, 
led people to Christ, and he, and he built converts into disciples who could also share their faith and make disciples and move around taking the message. So the gospel spread throughout the province of Asia to the towns, usually along the main roads that were used for trade and commerce. And there were a lot of them that intersected at Ephesus. That was the big seaport. So the letter of Revelation then would have been sent to those towns then to encourage the churches. And if you start at Ephesus, here, and kind of make a circuit around here, following some of the main roads, gee, it's kind of interesting. It makes sense then if a person were given the letter here in Ephesus, or carried the letter from Patmos out here to Ephesus, it makes sense then to carry that letter around, and eventually you could come right back to Ephesus. Okay, that, that makes sense. Maybe that's why there are seven churches. And that theory makes sense, I suppose, except for a couple things. Why those seven? What about Colossae? I mean, Paul actually wrote a church, a letter to that church, and you can see it's kind of just off on the side there by Laodicea. Why did it get bypassed? I don't know, but it's probably not an issue. But inquiring minds wonder. Um, well, some commentators have pointed out that these letters are a kind of preview of the entire history of the church from the beginning to the consummation. It's a historicist way of interpreting the book of Revelation. This isn't quite as popular today as it used to be, but it's still out there. So the, the seven churches represent seven stages or periods of church history. So these letters then are just our Lord's preview of the entire church throughout its history as it moves through the various stages of development heading towards the end. The difficulty with this is, well, how do you decide where the periods start and where do they end? Because the only way you can figure this out is looking in your rearview mirror. We have no idea how much longer the church is going to be here on earth. So people always like to find themselves in the church of Laodicea because you know that's the last one before the Lord comes back. So everybody hopes that that's where we are. Maybe the seven churches were selected because they form a written structure to emphasize the issues that are in them. So here, this ought to look familiar, but in this case I, I added something. For those of you who are chiastic individuals, if you look here, you see that Ephesus and Laodicea, the outliers, one and seven there, are both in serious trouble with Jesus threatening them with being removed from his presence unless they repent. Now Smyrna and Philadelphia, which are numbers two and six, kind of moving in towards the center here, they have no criticisms leveled against them at all. They remain loyal in the midst of the persecution they're under, which was pretty severe in Smyrna. Now the middle three are ones who have done some compromising and have also remained faithful. They've compromised with pagan culture in some cases, and Pergamum probably is in the best condition, while Sardis ends up, the third one, ends up being probably in the worst condition. Anyway, regardless of why each of these seven churches receives a letter, all of them deal generally with the issue of witnessing for Christ in the midst of a pagan culture and staying faithful in doing it. And the churches with problems are told to strengthen their witness in various ways, and the two churches without problems are told to continue to persevere as faithful witnesses. So whatever your view is on why these seven churches received a letter really isn't all that critical. 
I just want you to get used to the idea that commentators can have differences of opinion, but the core message is unchanged. That's going to get even more fun if we get more into the, further into the book. But have you ever wondered what a letter from Jesus would say if he wrote to our church? Would it have words of commendation? Would it have words of rebuke and correction? So what can we glean from these letters, kind of the question in my mind, that, we, that let us know what changes we need to make, if any, or where we need to persevere? So let's jump into the first letter. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now the first question that has struck me, and I never really spent much time thinking about it until I had to prepare for this message, is, why is each of the letters addressed to an angel rather than to the church itself? I mean, are angels really responsible for what happens in the church? That would let us elders off the hook, wouldn't it? Well, that word angel at its root means messenger. In other parts of the New Testament, it has that meaning of messenger. But however, the word angel appears 47 times in Revelation outside these seven letters. In every case, it refers to a heavenly being, what we would normally think of as an angel. And a la Frank Peretti, perhaps each church has a guardian angel responsible for guiding the human leadership. They give us an out, I guess. In Hebrews 1, we're told that the angels, after all, are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. What gives me pause, though, is that God's angels are always shown as holy, always succeeding in accomplishing whatever God commands them to do. I don't know of any case where one of God's angels failed. But he fails in five out of these seven churches. That is not a very flattering picture of God's power working through one of his heavenly hosts. Well, some have seen this as a reference to the pastor or the human leader of the church as the messenger to whom the letter is directed which kind of gets the congregation off the hook at that point as well. But that's really not likely either from the standpoint that in the New Testament you never find a church with a single human leader. Leadership is always in the plural. Elders functioning as pastors of churches. And also, if it's addressed to a single person, why are plural verbs scattered throughout the letters? So, I'm going to offer up an alternative solution. I don't think that the angel of each church is literally a distinct spiritual being charged with the welfare of each church. I think that the angel is the church. Viewed from the perspective of the fact that Jesus is in control over his churches, the stars are in his hand. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now stars and lampstands both speak of the churches, since they both reflect the light of their king. But the lampstands are there to highlight his presence among the churches, and I think the stars representing his personal protection over the churches. After all, the the members of the churches were already, in a sense, 
in heaven, even though we're maybe suffering on earth. And we're told here that Jesus holds the seven stars. He holds the seven angels of the seven churches in his hand. In other words, Jesus is in control of the churches. And Jesus walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he says, as the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel, chapter 7. So the churches are to be lampstands that shine in the world, give light. And Jesus has fellowship with each of these churches. He knows what is happening in every church. And he also has the power to bring the church through persecution without compromising with the earth dwellers. We see that in the next verse. He says, I know your works. I'm intimately familiar with what you're doing. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he sees right off the bat three things that he can commend this church for. First off, he says that they are hard-working, committed disciples. He says, I know your works, your hard, your hard work and your perseverance. So these Christians were obviously active disciples. They weren't couch potatoes. They took their faith seriously, and they put it to work. They labored. They were busy people, continually working, and our Lord commends them for that. The second thing is that their doctrine was orthodox. Jesus commends them highly for this. He said, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. So these people do not run after every theological fad that came along. They examined teachers and preachers to discern if they were speaking truth. They checked up on what was being taught, and they strongly opposed some of that teaching that was being presented by some of the itinerant teachers of that day, especially those claiming to be apostles. In his last visit with the elders at the Ephesian church, Paul warned them that they're going to have trouble in this area. In the 20th chapter of Acts, he delivered to them that very moving, heartfelt message because he figured he was never going to see them again. In the course of that, in chapter 20, verse 29, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not necessarily from the outside, but from among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. So Paul understood the problem that was going to confront this church. And here, the Lord Jesus is recognizing how well they had followed the apostles' advice. They checked up on the speakers, they refused the teaching of many, they tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them to be false. Now, Paul had shown these elders, remember, these people didn't have a New Testament, but Paul had shown these elders how to test doctrine. In verse 32 of that same passage, he said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, who is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what's their basis for testing? Their personal opinions? No, really, it's whether the teaching agrees with the scriptures or the word of God's grace, as he calls it here. Remember, Ephesus was in a specially blessed position in the first century. It had a large legacy of Christian teaching and Christian leaders. Remember, you know, Paul spent almost three years there teaching and making disciples. 
And while he was there, he wrote at least two letters to the church in Corinth, which I'm sure reflected his teaching in Ephesus, dealing with issues. He wrote a letter to Ephesus while he was under house arrest in Rome, which we looked at in some detail. He sent his spiritual son, Timothy, to Ephesus to strengthen the church, and he wrote two letters to him while he was there. There's a tomb in Ephesus that's dedicated, claimed to be the Ephesus of Dr. Luke, claimed to be his grave. So maybe, quite probably, a church tradition says that he spent time there, maybe even wrote part of his gospel there. It was a home base for the Apostle John, as we see in his, all three of his epistles, and then here. There was also a church and a, and a, uh, say a, a memorial dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because traditionally, Jesus' mother actually was a part of John's household. Remember that Jesus had told John to take care of his mother when Jesus was hanging on the cross. They even say that Mary Magdalene was there. So of all the churches, Ephesus had the teaching that could really help him discern truth from error. And begin to think, well, if this were widely practiced today, we wouldn't have near the problems we have with some of the terrible, shameful scandals that have plagued the church. Because our Lord commends the, the people in Ephesus for boldly confronting those who mislead God's people in the church. And he doesn't charge them with being judgmental. He points out this is part of the teaching that they had received, and he commends them for it. So the Ephesians obviously thought deeply about what was being taught in their midst. They weren't like Christians, maybe sometimes today, whose doctrine du jour is the last thing they read on a blog. Even today, if somebody says they believe in Jesus, we need to ask, which Jesus? There are a lot of Jesuses out there. I mean, there's Jesus the political revolutionary. There's the Jesus of Mormonism. There's the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's the liberal Jesus. There's the postmodern Jesus. And finally, for some, there's the biblical Jesus. When people say they believe in Jesus, we need to make sure, just like the Ephesians, that it's a Jesus found in Scripture, which means we ask questions. And the Ephesians did that. And they were ready with the truth to respond if somebody missed the boat. But he also commends them for staying faithful, whoops, for staying faithful to Jesus, to the gospel. He says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What kind of hardships? What was life like for a Christian in Ephesus at this time? If you want a better, more complete understanding, you can go back to our on our YouTube channel back to last March, where you get the background that was given on the book of Ephesians, background of Ephesus. Um, but I'm just going to summarize it here. One, one thing about Ephesus is it's probably one of the most completely excavated cities of these seven. So we're able to see a lot of what life might have been like looking at the ruins that are there. So here, here's your chance to use your sanctified imaginations as we go through a little tour of the city of Ephesus. Looking at it from perspective now of a Christian who is called to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. So as you leave your ship in the harbor and begin walking into town, the most imposing sight is up on the hill to your right which doesn't show in here because this, actually this reconstruction is earlier than when the book was, this book was written. Anyway, it's a temple. 
And this temple has, it's set up on the hill and it has a very imposing tower. The top of this tower are representation statues of the main gods of Rome. And those main gods of Rome, in turn, are holding up a statue, a life-size statue, actually it's 25 feet high, of the Emperor Domitian. Pretty significant. You get an idea right away. Domitian is going to have a lot of influence in his policies over this city because they had to work hard in order to get to be able to give, be given the right to be able to build that in the first place. So Ephesus built this temple just to honor the emperor, who had declared himself to be God, and was actually being supported by the other Roman gods. Well, as you're walking to town, on your left-hand side there is something that's called the Agora. That was the marketplace. That's where people bought and traded. That's where you went to get groceries. That's where you went to buy things. If you had a business, that's where you went to sell things. That was where the main, the main street of commerce was right down through there, and there was a, it was a colonnaded area, roofed over, and you could rent a stall. You could also buy things there. But before you could actually enter in, alongside of the, the walkway there is a little uh, bin of incense, and you're supposed to put some money in, grab some of that incense, and you're supposed to move on another couple of steps and drop it onto a fire, offering that incense to Domitian. Now, if you didn't do that, and of course, if you were caught, you wouldn't be allowed to transact any business. And you certainly wouldn't be allowed to rent any space. It makes it kind of tough if you lived there. Do I offer incense to the emperor? Or do I just try to get by and sneak in or use a friend or something, some way to get in without having to actually compromise my belief in Jesus by worshiping Domitian? Well, you proceed on, you can see in the background there the huge theater, which could seat over 20,000 people. You remember back from the book of Acts, this is where they dragged Paul's companions, and maybe even Paul if it had a chance, because the silversmiths, the ones who built these little talismans for the, for the, uh, the queen, for the, the main reason why people came to Ephesus, Artemis. And they were doing business because people were converting to Christianity and didn't want these idols anymore. So as you walk further into town, you come to the Temple of Dionysus, or Bacchus, which is kind of the center for all forms of debauchery, which always filled out of the street as well. You've got to walk past that. And if you're accosted, you have to provide some way of giving honor to that temple as well. And if you continue walking, eventually, if you go over that hill, around, around it, you'll come to the temple of Artemis herself, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis is the protector of wild animals. She's also called Diana in, in the Roman times, the goddess of the hunt. She's also the patron of midwives and virgins. Now, why is that important? Because childbearing was one of the scariest times in the life of a woman during those days. And also trying to, infant mortality was a huge problem too. You wanted protection. You wanted help. So Ephesus was also, as we saw before, a center for all kinds of idolatry and sorcery. If you live there and became a Christian, you're going to be facing ostracism in the market, being able to buy and sell. In your job, because all the trade guilds 
all had ceremonies usually in their meetings in which they offered incense or offered prayers to their own particular patron god. Everywhere you looked, it was a very religious place. Everywhere you looked, there were all these counterfeit gods, and you're supposed to give honor to them or you're not considered a good citizen. As a matter of fact, you're considered an atheist, and you're also considered a danger to the moral order of the town. So living as a Christian in Ephesus was very difficult. It was not easy. We also see in verse 6 that the Ephesus was, the church was commended for hating the teaching and works of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you look at commentaries, you're going to find that nobody really for, knows for sure who these people are. However, Marty will cover that when we get to Pergamum. <laughs> we do know that it probably involved sexual sin and idolatry. Jesus commends the Ephesian church because they hate their teaching and, he, and they hate the works of these people. And Jesus says in verse 6, and I hate their teaching too. Apparently love to Jesus means hating things, hating teachers that do not honor God as God and that destroy human beings that lead them astray. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There are certain things that Jesus hates. But the church had persisted in their teaching and in their work despite a lot of discouragement and a lot of hardship. They were determined disciples, faithfully working, not deviating one bit from the truth they had received. So up to this point, their letter grade would be what? An A+. But, now we need to read the rest of the story. Our Lord goes on. But I have this against you. Oh, I never want to hear that from Jesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is serious stuff. Jesus is telling them that they're in danger of being excommunicated by Jesus himself of removing them from his very presence. He puts it in one brief phrase, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so serious, he says, if you don't correct this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, it doesn't mean that individual members in the church, of course, are, are going to hell, they're being lost. What it means is the church is going to lose its ability to convey light, to shed light on the culture. The light from this church was going to quit shining. They become a church with no influence, no impact spiritually upon their community. They'd still be working, they'd still be orthodox, but with no light, no real impact on Ephesus. So is he talking about love for God here or their love for others? I mean, we tend to look at this, this verse as being, well, emotionally, I don't feel like I love Jesus like I used to. And we're trying to make this into kind of a, a personal issue with ourselves usually having to do with our emotional feeling at the moment. So is he talking about my love for God or is he talking about our love for others? They're inseparable. John actually writes this in, the, in his very first letter in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus expanded even more to say not just your brother, but also your neighbor, which are those who are people that you live with that may not be believers. So we know that true love for God then flows out of from our love for God, our love of God. And you know it's always difficult to balance believing the right things with loving people who don't agree, those who don't share our beliefs. So the emphasis here is that they overbalanced on getting things right correct doctrinally, but they neglected their command to make disciples of the earth dwellers they live with. They'd separated themselves so far that they no longer had an active ministry with individuals who needed to know Jesus. And that was one of the hallmarks of that church at first, was it spread through all the whole area there. One of the problems is that when you're under constant pressure to conform to your culture so you can keep your job or so you can raise a family, it's easy for your love for Jesus to grow cold. And Jesus described this in his Sermon at the Mount of Olives, the very end of, of uh, his life on earth, Matthew 24. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a serious warning, and it's just as applicable today as it ever was. We do not dare let our love for Christ grow cold. And one of the signs that that could be happening isn't how I feel necessarily, but how, I'm, how concerned I am for those people who don't know Jesus yet. Well, how do you recover from this? The Lord gives three really clear, very succinct steps. Remember, repent, and return. The three R's. He says, look back. Remember what it was like when you first came to Jesus, when you were a Christian in your early days. The joy you had and the delight you took with other Christians in the reading of the word, the hearing of the word. And you couldn't stop talking about Jesus and the changes that he was making in your life. You didn't have to know a lot about theology and doctrine, but you knew what happened to you. And you had no problem with sharing that with other people. So he says, look back. Think back. And then he says, repent. Recognize what has taken place, or what has taken the place of Jesus in your life. Renounce whether it's ambition or pride of position or longing for approval that's become so important to you and it's it's motivating your work that you've lost interest in meeting the needs of other people around you. He says, put the Lord back in the center and focus all your endeavors on him. He says, repent, change your mind. And then he says, return. So not just turning from sin, not just turning from sinful behavior and back to the Lord, but ask him then to renew our love for him, but also that's going to be shown in our love for others around me. We ask him to grant us new strength to love him and to love fellow believers, which is no minor matter, because Jesus says he's going to remove the lampstand of a church that loses its love for him. That's a sobering thought. The church may disappear entirely, as did all the churches in Turkey. At this point, they're not there. They're ruins. Or it might become a church in name only, with no life-giving power, but still meeting on a regular basis. 
And this message was not just for the church in Ephesus, even in the first century, because Jesus says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life, of course, as you remember, was in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of time. It was the tree that Adam and Eve were free to eat of, at least until they sinned. After that, they were excluded from the garden. Since Adam failed to guard it, he put cherubim out there who would guard the garden. Because God didn't want them to eat from the tree of life and, and end up eternally in that state of sin where they were at that point. And it also appears again, this tree of life, at the very end of time. In Revelation chapter 22. There we see the new heaven and the new earth. And the tree of life, he says, is in the midst of the city. Do you have an ear to hear what Jesus says? This is what he says. To him who overcomes, to him who conquers, to him who refuses to bow to those parts of your culture that would draw you away from God, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that center picture there, because it shows that in the front of the temple of Artemis, there was a huge date palm tree. This is one of their coins. It actually became one of the symbols of Ephesus. Women in particular would come to the temple, stop to touch the tree, maybe tuck in a prayer request. You know what palm trees are like. It's easy to tuck in prayer requests. And they would ask Artemis to help them with issues maybe of infertility or, or get them through childbirth safely help them to raise this new life in their family without the baby dying early on. And if Artemis came through, they promised that they would give something of value. Because idolatry is always a trade-off. It's always a transaction. It's always a business. But people in Ephesus knew that this tree was very important to them, a big tourist attraction. But the tree at Ephesus is a counterfeit. The Lord is himself the true tree of life. The tree of life is a picture of Jesus. If we draw strength from him, praying to him and taking from him the strength that he's willing to offer, we're going to find ourselves strengthened to meet the pressures and the temptations that come in living life today. And that's what he's saying. Feed on the tree of life. Listen to what Jesus says and obey it, and you'll soon find your spiritual life flourishing. He's saying you'll grow strong in the pressures and struggles that come your way. That is the tree of life. So as we come to the communion table this morning, it's most appropriate that we should remember this reminder of our Lord's life and death. What we feed on, of course, is the bread, which is another symbol of him. So we're to gain strength by by feeding upon the life of Jesus, taking from him what we need in order to motivate us to be all that he wants us to be. You don't want the alternative. So as we come to this Lord's Supper, ask yourself the question, do I really love my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do I love my neighbor as myself? If not, Revelation here is saying, your love for Jesus is in question, but you can still do something about it. He says, take a spiritual inventory and remember and repent and return. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, that you have given us the opportunity to take stock, to consider if our love for you, for Jesus, is growing or if it's staying static, it's the same thing as diminishing. I thank you, Father, that you have given us this, this warning to be able to encourage us. Because once again, this warning is really a promise in disguise. If we, if we turn to you, if we turn away from what we have been doing that maybe has given us a heart that's cold, you have said that you will cause us to be able to return. You do that. It's all your grace. So I thank you, Father, that uh, as we go through the Lord's Supper this morning, as we partake, that, we ought, that as we think about what Jesus did on our behalf and what he still does on our behalf, may it cause us to grow in our love for him more deeply. Just thank you for doing these things for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.